We're in 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12 today. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. Uh, so most of you in this room, many of you in this room are younger than me, so you don't remember this, but there was a show uh, back in the 60s and it was called Gilligan's Island. Raise your hand if you've heard of Gilligan's Island, okay? Raise your hand if you've actually seen episodes of this show, okay? So, well, I grew up in the 70s, so the show was already off, off the, the air, but there was a little station in San Antonio that we could get with our rooftop antenna. Again, some of you are too young to remember this, but so we could pick up this channel, and they showed Gilligan reruns right about the time I got off school every day. And so I'd get off the bus, and I'd watch Gilligan you know, and his fruitless efforts to get off the island with all of his other castaways. And my mom was worried about me because she said, Jeff, this is the dumbest show that has ever been invented. Now, if she, if she saw TV today, I don't know what she would think because it's far dumber today. But, um, but she said, Jeff, it's going to rot your brain. And she really was concerned. You can judge for yourself how I turned out. But I, I will say there's some educational value to Gilligan. Now, this is just me being, being silly. This is, I hope you can indulge me. But you can actually, I learned, you can actually sing the words to Amazing Grace to the tune of the theme of Gilligan's Island. And I'll prove it to you. You ready? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Yeah. One of the great hymns of our faith just butchered. I mean, you just, and y'all clapped for it. I don't know what's wrong with y'all, but um, so this is why you don't hear me sing more. But so there was a moment in Gilligan's Island when, again, dumbest show ever, but Gilligan fashions some crude little wings and puts them on his arms and he's trying to fly, you know? So he's, he's flapping as hard as he can and Skipper comes out of the, out of the, the hut and sees Gilligan hovering in the air about 15 feet off the ground and he says, Gilligan, you can't fly. And Gilligan says, I can't. And he drops like a rock, splat. And I was so frustrated about that. I saw that episode like four or five times because they only made about a couple of dozen. And I would always be so mad, just don't discourage him and he'll do it. Now, this is the sloppiest transition in preaching history, but as Christians today in our world, we get no encouragement, no encouragement outside of the church. And that hasn't always been the case. As American Christians, people my age and older remember when there was, it was advantageous to be a follower of Christ, to be a member of a church. If you went into a bank to get a loan, if you sat down in front of an employer and were applying for a job, it was to your advantage to say, hey, by the way, I'm a member of First Baptist Conroe. Whereas today, if you said something like that in that situation, they'd say, why would I care? In that world, in the world I grew up in, uh, politicians would make a very outward show of piety. Even if they weren't really Christians, they, would, they knew, I've got to at least pretend to be one or I'm not going to get any votes. Big budget studio, I mean, this was before my time, but shortly before my time, Big major movie studios would pour huge resources and their best talent into making these vast biblical epics. So whereas today you've got the MCU, right? Back then they would make movies like Ten Commandments and Ben-Hur. This is a true story. My dad was a kid when the, when the movie Ben-Hur came out. They canceled school so all the kids could go watch it the day it came out. That would never happen today. Now I want to be clear about something. When I say things have changed, we are not experiencing persecution. 
Sometimes I hear Christians talking like we're, we're being persecuted. We are not. We are not anywhere close to it. Nobody in this room has experienced real persecution in this country. But the tides have changed. Whereas once we had what you might call the home field advantage, the wind was at our back, we were seen culturally as the good guys, things have changed. And now you're much more likely in a depiction of a Christian in a movie. If I see a, per, a person who is a Christian in a movie, I know they're the bad guy. That's almost always the case. A preacher, he's really the bad guy, right? A preacher or a priest, you can count on it. He's gonna be a terrible person. Uh, and, and when you get on social media, let me give you some advice. If you see a, a story, a news story online about religion, has anything to do with religion, do not read the online comments. I beg of you, don't do it. You're gonna read the most vile things about Christian faith. And some of you, it goes far beyond what you see on a screen. You're experiencing this. You're a student in, in a local school or maybe in a university. And so you, you hear that. And parents, those of you who uh, are, are trying to shield your kids from that, right? You may send your kid to a, a Christian school. You may homeschool your kid, but they're gonna experience it eventually anyway. It's going to happen. Some of you experience this in your workplace. Some of you have friends, family members, uh, coworkers, acquaintances, neighbors, and their whole purpose in life seems to be to make you feel silly for your faith in Christ, to degrade, to demean your walk with the Lord. It is a series of, of ridiculous statements. It's mockery, and it, it can hurt. Not persecution, but it's still painful. What do we do with this? Because I know what we want to do with this. Some of us have the faculty, the the ability to blast those people. We can, we can win an argument, right? Is that what we should do? Is that our goal in these relationships? Let's look at what Peter says, because in the book of 1 Peter, he's talking about making progress in a culture that hates your faith, that thinks your faith is ridiculous. These two verses deal with this subject. Verse 11 of 1 Peter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, he says, when they speak of you as evildoers, for Christians in the ancient world, it was far worse than it is for us. Now, these Christians, we don't think were experiencing actual physical persecution yet, but they were very much the minority in their culture. And we're gonna talk a little later in this message about some of the accusations that Christians had to face. But one, I'll tell you from the start, they were, they were believed to be traitors to the nation. And I'll tell you why, because everybody else believed in a multiple, in a, in a whole pantheon of gods, the, the old Roman gods. And so the Christians were the holdouts. They, they refused to worship the gods. They worshiped their own God, Jesus Christ, and, and God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so when bad things would happen in, in your city, if, if there was a natural disaster, if your city got invaded, if uh, the economy turned downward, people would say it's those Christians' fault because they dishonored the gods. There's even a story in the book of Acts in, in the city of Ephesus in which there was this huge riot and all the Christians thought they're gonna come kill us. And the riot, the whole source of the riot was that the economy had taken a dip because people were no longer buying religious paraphernalia from the temple of Diana because they were becoming Christians and they didn't worship Diana anymore. And so they threw this big riot. Today, we're accused increasingly of ignorance and intolerance. 
which let's face it, are the only two sins that we can all agree on anymore anyway. We're seen as people on the wrong side of history. So how do we respond to that? See, Peter tells us, just like he told the Christians back in his day, keep your behavior among the Gentiles. He's speaking as a Jew. He's talking about unbelievers. Keep your behavior among unbelievers honorable that they may glorify God. Now, how is that possible? How can we live in such a way that those who make fun of us now don't just stop making fun of us, they actually begin to believe in our Savior? How can that be possible? Two things he tells us to do. Number one, he commands us to be different. Be different. Verse 11, again, he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Passions of the flesh, we could call that desire, any desire that's outside the will of God. And in in the time Peter's writing, Roman thought dictated everything. And in Roman society, the passions of the flesh were seen as something you didn't deny yourself, especially if you were a free man. Now, if you were a slave or if you were a woman, there were rules you had to follow. But for a free man, there were no rules. You You could do anything your heart told you to do. And along come the Christians, and God says, I want you to be different. I want you to be holy. If you were with us last week, we, we went at great length to define what that word holy means. Now, I'll tell you, I, I need to talk some more about this because this is something a lot of Christians don't quite comprehend. When I was in my late teens, early 20s, this is when I really started taking my faith seriously for the first time. I'd, I'd, be, I'd gotten saved at nine, grew up in church, but around 16 through 21 is when I really started to grow in my faith, started to pursue Christ in a real way. And, and I'm sad to say, What I thought of holiness was very much superficial external things. Like for instance, I I stopped going to rated R movies. I stopped listening to secular rock and roll music. I remember coming home from college and I had this massive, this big cube shaped box of cassette tapes. That's how long ago this was, right? Big box of cassette tapes, all the bands that I listened to. And and my brother and his friend Tim were at the house. And so I came up to them and I said, okay boys, You can take what you want and throw away the rest. And they just looked at me. Their jaws dropped. They knew how much money was in there. And I said, yeah, I'm not listening to this stuff anymore. I'm only listening to Christian music from now on. Now, I I regret that for a couple of reasons. But one, one big one is, if I really thought at the time that rock and roll music would poison you against the Lord, why would I give it to my brother? Yeah, what was I thinking? But, but also, why did I have such a narrow view of what holiness was? Why was it all about external things? Don't get me wrong. Starting to listen to Christian music when I was about 19 or 20 was a big transition. It it blessed me, still blesses me today. Yesterday, I went for a run listening to the music we just sang, and it was a blessing. It helped get me ready for for Sunday. But holiness is more than that. Last week, we talked about it. Holiness comes down to two things. It comes down to the fear of God, which means to live every day in the awareness that God is with you, that he's watching and wanting to make him proud. And everything you do and everything you say and everything you think, every part of your life, wanting to honor him. That's the fear of the Lord. And the second part of holiness is to love others. Again, we said last week, it doesn't mean to have this this sentimentalism, this affection for every person. It means that you will the good for every person that God has placed in your life. You work for their good. You pray for their good. And that is what it means 
to be holy. So when we hear abstain from the passions of the flesh, our minds immediately go to external things. If it's not movies or music, it's sexuality and those things. And yes, those things matter. But you always have to read scripture in context. Not only is that not all there is to do with holiness, remember, he's writing to people who are being ridiculed for their faith, who are being falsely accused of evil. So when he says abstain from the passions of the flesh, in this context, what he's saying is, when people cut you down, when they disrespect you, when they make you look foolish, your tendency is gonna wanna be to fight fire with fire. And again, there are people in this room who are very witty, very quick, who can win a verbal battle. And yet Paul is, is telling us to abstain from that. Paul is saying, no, don't do that. Instead, instead, you come to them with a different tactic. You have to be different from the world. That's how the world responds when they're disrespected, but not us. And that brings us to the second point, prove them wrong. If our goal is not to win the argument, if our goal is not to put them in their place, if our goal is not to satisfy our own need to get the last word, then our goal should be to prove that they are wrong in their assumptions about our God and about the faith he has created. See, the goal is, again, that at the end of the day, at the end of time, on the day of judgment, they would stand there glorifying God. And I believe it is very, very possible that there are people who right now are the meanest people in the world to you. And someday you're strolling on the new earth and you run into one of those people and you say, I can't believe you're here. And he says, yeah, me either. And it's all because of you. And think about how that will make you feel. That because I chose the countercultural way, instead of blasting you, instead of, instead of fighting fire with fire, I chose to prove you wrong. You're walking in eternity today. Your life is forever in eternity with Christ. And I know, I know there are some of you right now that are experiencing an emotion and you're too polite to stand up and, and shout me down, but, but right now you're thinking to yourself, Jeff, I can't live that way. I can't be someone who is held captive by the opinions of others. I can't walk around worrying what unbelievers think of me. And let me tell you, in a way, you are right. Because if, if it's the goal of any Christian to be liked by the world, then you're headed in the wrong direction. That is the, that is the path to destruction. And, and I'll, I'll admit, there, was, there were times in my life where even as a Christian, I, I wanted to be liked by others at least as much as I wanted to please God. You have to make the decision. And I tell teenagers all the time, when you choose to follow Christ, you're saying, okay, I'm giving up on any desire to be one of the cool kids, because you can't do both. You can be respected, you can make a difference, but you're never gonna be one of the cool kids if you follow Jesus because Jesus does not walk in the ways of the world. So I'm not saying that we live our lives uh, being dictated to my unbelievers and trying to please them. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying, and I hope you'll hear this, if you hear nothing else, every day you should worry about, you should wonder about, you should be guided by this idea. I, want, I care not about what people think of me, but I care about what people think about Jesus because of me. Because if you're thinking that your unsaved neighbor, friend, classmate, boss, coworker is someday going to just randomly pick up a Bible and start reading, or just wander into church one Sunday, or, or get on YouTube and find old videos of Billy Graham and find out what the gospel sounds like, it's not going to happen. You're talking about a 0.00001% chance. You are the Jesus they're going to meet, period possibly the only one. 
So if you're the only source of truth about Christ that they experience, what do they know about Jesus because of you? I want you to ask yourself that question. If you were the only Christian that person knew, what would their conclusions be about the Christian faith? Would they see righteousness? Would they see, would they see integrity? They, would they see love? Would they see grace, mercy, humility? Would they see the fruit of the Spirit? See, that's what we're called to do. Chapter 2, verse 15, he goes on and says, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We shut their mouths by showing them what Christianity really is, who Jesus really is. Next chapter, chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Next week, we'll look at this in greater detail. But for now, look at what it says. It says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Did you hear that? We can put our enemies to shame, but we do it by treating them with gentleness and respect. So even if you're one of those people who's a skilled debater, God bless you, you do the work of God, but you do it with gentleness and respect, knowing that most of the time, people who mock Christianity are gonna show you the opposite of gentleness and respect, and yet that's what you respond with. Because your goal is not to win an argument, your goal is to win people. Your goal is not to own your enemies, your goal is to bring them to Jesus. And, and listen, I will stand by these words. You'll hear me say this often because Christians often get this wrong. When you disagree with someone, you can either insult them or you can persuade them, but you can't do both. You have to make a decision. And far too often in social media and in real life situations, we choose the wrong decision. We choose the, the path of insult instead of the path of persuasion and love. He goes on, chapter, I'm sorry, Colossians 4, 5. So this is Paul. Paul agreeing with his friend Peter. He writes, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Some translations say that, redeeming the time. And so I call this sermon, redeem the ridicule. Redeem the ridicule, understanding that when we are mocked, when we are disrespected, when people say things about us and about our faith that we know are not true, that is an opportunity. God has allowed that to happen to us. He's placed us in that position and he says, now go show them differently. Don't whine, don't complain, don't get angry like a two-year-old kid who someone stole, stole his, his toy truck. No, love them, show them the difference that Christ makes in your life. And then everybody knows Matthew 5, 16, straight out of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We all know that song, this little light of mine, right? This little light of mine. I'm not gonna sing, don't worry. I've already done that. What's that song about? It's not about a literal light. It's, it's about being the light of Christ in a dark place. If there's a blackout, citywide blackout, and you've got the one house with lights on, you've got the one source of light, people are going to be attracted to that. Your neighbors are going to come knock on your door. Hey, can we come here? It's hot in my house. The air conditioner's out. Can I come stay with you? Absolutely. That should be every Christian in this room. We should be that light in a dark place, that, that comfortable area in a place that's full of pain and hate. We should be drawing people to Christ. Now, when you go on and read the rest of chapters two and three, we're not gonna do that here, but I'll just tell you, 
you can make the mistake of thinking, oh, he's just kind of telling us random commands, but he's not. He's still talking in the context of ridicule and, and, and mockery, and he's saying, for instance, hey, they think we're all bad citizens. They think we don't love our country. Let's prove them wrong. Let's be the best citizens in Rome. They think we're against, uh, the, the, we're against the traditional family because you know, we believe that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, for all, uh, neither male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. You know, In Roman society, they thought the family had to work this way, that the husband is the king and the wife is just a slave. And now here Christians come along and say, no, no, in God's eyes, you're, you're both equally important. And the Romans are like, oh, you're gonna destroy the family. And, and Peter says, so, so prove them wrong. Wives, love your husbands. Your husband's not a believer. Don't nag him. Don't criticize him. No, love him. Win him without a word by your gentle and quiet disposition, by loving him the way he wants to be loved. Husbands, treat your wives with gentleness. Treat them as a precious vessel. She's, she's not Tupperware, for goodness sake. She's Waterford, right? She's beautiful. She's precious. Treat her that way and show the world that through Christ, Real love can, can build a marriage that's beautiful. They were accused of, of wanting to, to uh, abolish slavery and cause uh, slave revolts. That was the big threat in that time. Some of you remember the movie Spartacus. If you haven't, get a chance to see it. It's excellent. Real event, about 150 years before this, a great slave revolt, tens of thousands of people died. And so there was a great fear that these Christians were gonna cause this again. Because again, they're walking around saying slaves and, and, and masters are the same. And so Peter writes and says, okay, slaves, I'm not telling you to rise up against your master. I'm telling you, work hard and, and, and show him who Jesus is by serving with courage and integrity. And masters, if you own a slave, you better treat him like your equal because in God's eyes you are, and he's your master, and you're gonna have to answer to him someday. And some of us today look at it and say, well, why didn't Peter and Paul and the other apostles, why didn't they just call for the abolition of slavery? Because they had no clout because they were living in a society in which they were the vast minority, it would have been counterproductive for them to, to advocate for abolition. That, that wouldn't have helped their cause at all. Instead, they sowed the seeds for the end of slavery by saying, in Christ's eyes, you're all the same. And it wasn't long before Christian masters started going, I can't enslave you anymore. You're, you're my equal. You're, you're my brother, my sister. And slavery was overthrown by the love of God. Peter even says, you're going to experience pain. He knew as a prophet that these people he's writing to would experience persecution, actual physical persecution. Some would go to jail, some would be tortured, some would, be, uh, some would lose their jobs and some might even be killed. And he says, don't be surprised when this happens. We don't put that on coffee mugs and on little plaques and on bumper stickers, but the Bible tells us, don't be surprised when you suffer for Christ. This is the norm, it's not the exception. And when it happens, the best way to respond is not by being a victim, but by saying, how can I prove that you're wrong about this? How can I prove that you don't understand what this faith is really all about? If Peter were standing here today, he might say, yeah, I know that people out there in the world, uh, they think you're hateful and judgmental, so the response should be to love them in return. They should walk away saying, man, nobody's ever loved me like these people that I was accusing of all these terrible things. If they say you're bigoted and intolerant, which they do, respond by being the most compassionate people, the people who are most likely to lift up the marginalized and show them that hope is found in Christ. If they call you a hypocrite, say, you know what, you're right. I'm not the person Jesus deserves. 
for me to be. And I want to be that person. But he has saved me by his grace. He has forgiven me. And I'm further along the road than I used to be. And someday by his grace, I will get there. And I will be exactly like him. You see, we need to prove them wrong. And, and I, there's a book I want to recommend to you. It, I don't think it's in the library there, but look it up. It's called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, written by a man named Nabil Qureshi. Uh, he died several years ago, tragically, at a young age from cancer, but Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Nabil was born in this country to Pakistani immigrants who were naturalized citizens. They were also very devout Muslims. They raised Nabil to be literally a missionary for his faith. And so he grew up believing that, that Christianity was a faith based on a distortion of the Holy Bible, uh, that the Jesus they believed in was not the Jesus who actually lived. And so he went through life ready to defend his, his faith against what he considered to be infidels. When he went off to college, he met a young man named David who was a devout Christian and they became close friends. And he said it was literally the first time in his life a Christian had ever tried to be his friend, which ought to break your heart because Nabil grew up in Virginia. I mean, in Virginia, there's plenty of churches, plenty of professing Christians. Nobody ever tried to be his friend until he was nearly 20 years old. David and Nabil had these long, intense religious discussions. They talked about their faith. And David, over time, began to show him the things that you've been told about Jesus, about the scriptures, about what Christianity is all about. They're not true. And Nabil Qureshi became a follower of Christ and wrote some amazing books, including this one, before the Lord took him home. My point is this, how many people do you know right now? Friends, classmates, coworkers, the guy who cuts your hair, the nurse who takes your blood pressure when you go into the doctor's office, how many people do you know who have these false ideas about the Christian faith and no one's ever taken the time to show them the truth? You know, we, we take it for granted in a part of the world where there's a church on every corner that everybody knows the gospel. That is ridiculous. There are people sitting in churches that don't know the gospel, I'm sad to say. So look for those opportunities. Look for those opportunities to show the world what the gospel truly, truly is. And I know some of you would say, Jeff, you don't understand. I, I know what you're talking about, the, but the person who's mocking me, they are so mean. They are awful. They hate me. They make my life miserable. How can I possibly be kind and loving to them? And, and you have to just remember the way that scripture ends that we started with. They will glorify God on the day of visitation. What does that mean? The day of visitation refers to judgment day. It's a reminder from Peter, that we're all going to stand judgment someday. And the cruelest, most vicious uh, person, the most, most anti-Christianity person alive, someday they're going to they're answer for that before the Lord. That ought to take away any thought of vengeance on our part. We don't need to take vengeance. We don't need to hate anyone. In fact, it frees us up to love. God's going to bring justice in every situation. So instead, here's what we need to do, and this is my challenge for you. I want you right now to think of someone who makes fun of Christian faith. Maybe it's someone you know personally, a classmate, a coworker, et cetera. Maybe it's just someone you know online or someone you see in media. Maybe it's a group of people, a specific group that you think, oh, those people, they just hate us. I want you to, I want you to pray to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me for the fleshly passions that I have towards these people because I hate them in return. And I want to put them in their place. And I want to talk bad about them. And I want everybody to see how evil they are. And Lord, can, 
convict me of that and change my heart so I can love them the way that you do. And there are some of you here and and your problem is the opposite. You're not hateful towards those people. Instead, you want to try to make them like you. And so you end up compromising your faith because you don't want to be made fun of. And again, go to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't want to shame you. I want to glorify you. So make me bold, bold and humble at the same time so I can represent you well before these people. Either way, it's time to stop clinging to this victim mentality. There are men and women right now around the world in places like China, in places like North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Iran. I could go on and on. Places where they're in prison for their faith. They're they're living in poverty because nobody will hire a Christian in their village. They've been disowned from their families. Some of them are, are, are the victims of actual physical violence because of their faith. Can you imagine walking up to somebody like that right now and saying, yeah, I wanted to represent Christ in the world, but people made fun of me, so I quit. But people made fun of me, so I just treated them the way they treated me in return. I can't imagine that. We have this incredible opportunity. I know, I know, it's, it's temp- people my age and older love to say, oh boy, I, lo- I miss the good old days when everything was, these are the times we've been placed in. And we're privileged to live in a time like this. This is an opportunity. When there's very, very few people who are anymore pretending to be Christian, it's less and less socially advantageous to do so. So now's the time for us, for us, to to take advantage of the fact that the Holy Spirit of God is in us. The same Holy Spirit that was in Jesus Christ when he was falsely accused, being demon-possessed, being a traitor to his people, when he was beaten, when he was slapped, when he was spat upon, when he was nailed to a cross, and then says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The same Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead, it's in you and me. So there's no excuse. We have the power to transform our communities by redeeming the ridicule that we're receiving in these days. The only question is, will we do it?